Welcome to the Real Vision Podcast Network. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, November 5th, 2021. Happy Guy Fox Day, everyone. I'm Ash Bennington, joined here today by Jim Bianco, president of Bianco Research. A lot to talk about. Let's highlight some of the key stories right now. It's Jobs Day, 531,000 new jobs added in the month of October. It's a beat on consensus, which was pegged at 450,000. It's the largest gain in three months, unemployment rate falling from 4.8% to 4.6%. But we can take a look at the overall chart on jobs. It's still down by 4.2 million payrolls since the pandemic. By the way, that doesn't account for trend growth, which would be higher than we are today. Much to talk about, a lot to cover on macro. Obviously, a few days out from the taper announcement, we're going to talk about supply chains. We're going to talk about inflation and the job markets more broadly. But first, let's take a look at what's happening in U.S. equity indices. It looks like Yep, I think we got there. Another all-time high on the S&P 500, closing out the day just shy of the 4,700 mark at 4,697. I think this is the 64th record day this year on the S&P 500. Dow Jones Industrial Average up 200 points on the day, uh, roughly six-tenths of 1%, closing out the day here uh, on a Friday at 36,329. Lots to talk about. Let's pull in Jim Bianco. Jim, welcome back. Hey, Ash. Thanks for having me. Jim, a lot going on, a lot happening right now. As you look at these markets, as you look at macro, as you look at what's come out of the Fed, the jobs report, how are you looking at the week so far? It's a good week to be long-risk assets, especially the stock market. It just keeps going and going. And if there's a nuance in there, um, what had been the case up until a week ago was the S&P 500 was going up and everything else was languishing. But now all of a sudden, the Russell 2000, the small cap stocks got a bid and they're starting to move as well too. The other big story is the big volatility in the bond market that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. This has been a down day week in volatility, but the bigger story here is all of a sudden, you know, we're just yawning at eight, nine point basis point moves in the bond market every day. Even two, three weeks ago, that was a big move. Now, all of a sudden, it's become kind of standard fare. So volatility is really kicking up in the bond market. Yeah, let's put an exclamation point on Russell 2000. Big winner of the day. Still moving around here a little bit. Looks like up 1.37% uh, to close out the day here on the Russell 2K at 2435 um, you mentioned the bond market, Jim. What are you seeing when you look at fixed income? How are investors pricing these moves that we're seeing from the Fed uh, and what we expect to see from the Fed in the future? Well, let's talk about <coughs> what's moving and why it's moving. This has been a move on the front end of the yield curve. And it's been, and I'm talking about backing up a month. This has been a gigantic move all the way through the end of the month on the front end of the yield curve. And what we're finding now in the first couple of days of November is a lot of big, well-known hedge funds are reporting that they just took it in the shorts. Uh, Brevin Howard, which is probably one of the premier hedge funds in the world, reported that they had maybe their worst month in history in their macro fund in October. Now, why? 
because when people were talking about whether we had transitory inflation or persistent inflation, and we were waiting for the markets to respond to it, and I'll raise my hand, I was one of those, we were looking at long-term interest rates maybe going up, saying there's an inflation problem, or we were looking at stocks maybe stumbling that there's an inflation problem. We got it in short rates, and we got it in a big way in short rates, but no one thought it would ever be in short rates because they're anchored by monetary policy. You know, the central bank shut, sets short rates. They have forward guidance. They tell you when they're going to move it. So you can really leverage the hell out of the short end of the yield curve. And a lot of them did that. And when rates started to move, we got a cover. Then we've got a re reaction rebounce. And we've got gigantic moves in short-term interest rates, gigantic relative to what we've expected. And a lot of pain and a lot of suffering in the fixed income community that traffic in the short end of the yield curve. Yeah, and let's put some data points around that for people who don't follow fixed income markets as closely as you do, Jim. If we roll the camera back to June, uh, we were looking at on the two-year uh, note, we were looking at it looks like about uh, zero, it's about 15 basis points. Uh, here we are at the end of the week, closing out at about 40 basis points. This is a massive move. Uh, over the last five months. I think we got as high uh, as 50 bips or half a percent on the two-year. Uh, obviously, you've got the front end of the curve rising to meet the belly. We saw some compression on the 210 spreads. These are huge numbers, big moves for a market that has been pretty sleepy for a long time. Yeah, let's, you know, I'll even put you um, uh, even finer point on. We were 21 basis points in the end of September. So we went from 15 to 21 June to September. Right. And by late last week, intraday, the two-year note traded 55 basis points. This is for that instrument is a massive move. And if you look at what's happened with the Canadian two-year or the Australian two-year or the New Zealand two-year, some of the two-year notes that we've seen, the, the moves we've seen in Europe, those have been equally massive moves. And again, why? Because everybody can leverage those. If they're yielding 20 basis points or 30 basis points and repo is five. I could borrow billions of dollars at five basis points. I could buy something that yields 20 basis points, pocket the difference without putting up any money, except if prices move against me and I get a margin call. And so that's what I think the pain has come. And no one thought there'd be a margin call because the Fed is not going to move rates and they promised not to move rates for months and months, yet it all kind of came unraveled. So for those of us, I'll raise my hand, said, watch the bond market. Yields are going to go up, and it's going to signal persistent inflation problems. I was looking for it on the long end of the curve. It came on the short end of the curve, is what it did in the last month or so. And I think the drop in yields that you've seen this week is a reaction to positioning right now, that the positioning was so hard one way, and now that we've kind of covered it out, we're getting a snapback. We'll see where we go from here. But I would say the trend is still higher on interest rates, especially in the short end of the curve. Yeah, first slowly, then all at once. Very well said, very well framed. Uh, for a little bit of context of dial the camera back here, dial out the Zoom, uh, for people who aren't following this as closely as you are, again, Jim, uh, let's talk about the taper that we heard from the Fed on Wednesday, currently underway. That's scaling back $120 billion uh, in per new purchases per month. Uh, that's $80 billion in treasuries, $40 billion in MBS agency debt. The taper, tapering back $15 billion per month in November and December. That's a pace that could, repeat, could uh, end the, the new buying uh, of Treasury securities by June of 2022. Yeah, I, I think that, that what you described was exactly what everybody expected. The nuance that maybe was a little bit of a surprise 
was the Fed only announced that they're going to taper in November and December. Right. So at the to December 15th meeting, they have to decide what to do in January and February. Most likely, they'll just announce more $15 billion unless something changes between now and the meeting on the 15th of December. But that what they've shown was an uber flexibility that right. they're going to go like one month at a time in order to taper. And if circumstances change, inflation heats up or the economy slows down, they can speed it up, slow it down, reverse it, whatever they need to do along the way. This is a far cry from 2018, where Powell got himself in some, got himself in trouble with the market when they were going to reduce the balance sheet. He announced a reduction of $60 billion a month for a year and said it was on automatic pilot, suggesting nothing would change that. And the market did not like that at all. And two weeks later, we got the Powell pivot when he said he'd be patient and flexible. Now he's Gumby flexible with this kind of uh, policy that we've got. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, you talk about Uber flexibility. I guess another way of saying that might be wiggle room. They've only committed now uh, to $30 billion, uh, and then it allows them to <laughs> be in a position where in January they can say, hey, we didn't commit if there are changes on the ground where you see labor markets looking problematic. And these really are the two key points. I want to pull up a couple of charts here just to show visually what we're talking about here. First, let's take a look at the total consolidated balance sheet of the Fed so you can get a certain sense of just how small the withdrawal of ultra-accommodative monetary policy is right now. So you've got this massive balance sheet uh, already at around $8.5 trillion. We're talking about pulling back here uh, a total of $30 billion in two months in additional purchases. I was kidding around with Tony Greer the other day, uh, and I said, this is like, you know, Tony, you lend me $100,000 for a down payment on a house, uh, and then you say to me, Ash, we're tapering. I'm getting really tough. I'm only going to lend you $800 a month to service the debt instead of the thousand I've been lending you for the last five years. This is a relatively small move uh, in terms of tapering back the balance sheet where they are today. And the second chart I would love to take a look at and to get your commentary on, Jim, uh, is the chart that you tweeted out earlier talking about the tracking of restoration of jobs since the lockdown. So you can see that we are still more than 4 million jobs below where we were at the beginning of the crisis. This gives a sense of the magnitude of the challenge uh, and how the Fed is caught between a rock and a hard place with inflation and jobs. Jump in, Jim. Explain a little bit about what we're seeing here on this chart. Well, on this chart here, um, you, you could see the big red bars. This is the monthly change of uh, payroll reports in the bottom panel. And we lost 20 million jobs, 20.6 million jobs in March of, of 2020. And then we've been on a slow rebound. Takeaway here is we're 4 million jobs or so away from completely recovering jobs where we were pre-pandemic. And you're right, this does not include population growth or anything, which is about 100,000 jobs a month or, or so. So we probably need another 2 million jobs to catch up with, with population growth, too, over the last... Uh, two years. The other thing to keep in mind about this chart is we're not at a new high. The, the, the economy, as measured by the level of GDP, but, uh, is at a new high. Um, personal consumption, the amount of stuff we buy, is at a new high. Personal income, our wages and our investments, are at a new high. Prices, CPI, inflation, is at a new high. The stock market's at a new high. Crypto's at a new high. Jobs are not. So I, I bring that up because yes, today's payroll report was good, 
add in the revisions of 235,000 for August and September, dare I say it was great. But in the bigger scheme of things, what is really lagging everything has been job creation. Everything else has made it back to its pre-pandemic high, but we're still 4 million or so jobs just from getting to that high, 6 million if you include um, uh, population growth as well too. Yeah, in the bigger scheme of things, that's a perfect title for this episode and why we're so happy to have you here talking about the broader context, trying to make sense of what happens in the daily news cycle in regard to these larger trends. Talking of which, one of the things that I wanted to bring up uh, was a clip. This is uh, that we're seeing Ross Kennedy and Simon Mikhailovich talking about exactly this, the broader context of where we are uh, in terms of where monetary policy is, the stance that's being taken on the fiscal side. Let's take a look at this clip. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, what's the opposite of the perfect storm? You know, perfect storm is when everything goes bad at, at, at you know, at a highest peak pitch. So we have created a, uh, I, I guess, a perfect lack of wind or whatever, or lack of perfect lack of storm, where <laughs> where we we felt suddenly that we have this phenomenal free lunch or this endless stream of free lunches. We have disinflation. We are using cheap labor. We're using materials that are produced at a cheaper cost. We're using manufacturing base that is unburdened by all the regulatory and uh, environmental and uh, you know. Uh, work rules that uh, would have to be born here in the United States or in the West, in, in Western Europe. So it was like a perfect combination where we thought, I guess, that we could just have this free lunch forever. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see... Whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices, or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again, March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holds barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's get right back to the top analysis of today's markets. So there you have it, the perfect stillness of the night. I'm not exactly sure what the metaphor is, but certainly an interesting point from Simon Mikhailovich. Jim, we were talking a little bit offline uh, about supply chains issues. How do you think about supply chains right now? And what's the significance in relationship to the broader macro economy? So I know people want to believe that the supply chain issues are behind us. But if you look at the data, and I do spend some time looking at the data, whether it's ships anchored off of LA or container traffic or anything else, what is the worst day of the supply chain crunch? The answer is today. And most likely tomorrow will be even worse than today. It's not getting better. It may be peaking soon, but it's not getting better. Now, I know the narrative out of Wall Street is that, you know, the narrative out of Wall Street is the magic economic indicator of everything is the S&P 500. It's going up. So therefore, all problems must be going away. This problem is not going away, but it might be also an, a, an independent issue from the stock market right now. As the stock market continues to go up, I think it's for wholly different reasons, but the supply chain issue is there. Now, why is that important? 
if it doesn't bother the stock market? Because I do think there is a fix for the supply chain. If you raise prices enough, you will cool demand enough to bring everything in balance. Because what the problem is, we hear the words bottleneck and everything else. Let me rephrase the problem, same thing. We are running the supply chain at 100% of capacity. We wanted to do something it wasn't designed to do. It's not right. going to be that easy to expand capacity. Yeah, you could do it over years. You can't do it, you can't do it between now and Thanksgiving to get in time for Christmas. So how do you bring things back in balance? You make people stop buying stuff by raising prices higher and higher to cool demand. That will bring it back in the line real fast, but that's not the way everybody wants it. That feeds into my previous comments about short rates. That's more inflation is what we're looking at here. And so when people snarkily say, well, the Fed can't print the you know, container ships or something like that. No, but they've printed too much demand is what they've done. They've stuffed too much money in everybody's pocket. And to be fair, you can also throw in the fiscal situation too with all the stimulus money. We've put too much money in people's pockets. Part of that money is going to the stock market. That's why it relentlessly goes higher. Part of that money is buying stuff. And now we're, we're asking the supply chain to do something it wasn't designed to do. Yeah, it gets back into this point about this damned if they do and damned if they don't, trying to balance out the two legs of the dual mandate. And by the way, in addition uh, to market stability, looking at attempting to maximize employment and have stable prices, when you have this, this massive black hole that sucked out so much economic activity during the COVID crisis and how that rebound works, now you're starting to see some of that getting demand getting pulled forward, but the inability of global supply chains to meet it it just seems to be getting worse, particularly on the chip shortage side, uh, which has impacts on things uh, like automotive supply chains, uh, feed throughs. When you see new car supply chains impacted, you see prices rising on used cars. It is just like this constant processional effect of knock on after knock on uh, trying to get this figured out. It's like trying to uh, solve a jigsaw puzzle in three different dimensions. Yeah, you know, it really is. And no less of an authority than Jay Paul kind of summed up, I think, the problem with Jay Powell, the Fed, and a lot of economists. In his presser on Wednesday, he repeatedly said, this is unprecedented. It's really hard to get a handle on the supply chain. Jay, I agree with you. But it's going to peak in the next you know, couple of months. How do you know that, Jay? You just said you can't figure it out. It's really hard to understand where inflation's going. It surprised us. Jay, I agree with you. But it will peak in the second or third quarter and go down. Well, all of a sudden, you know, and he did this repeatedly, where he said it's it's uncertain, it's very difficult, it's it's unique what we're seeing in the environment, and then he gives a precise, definitive forecast right after that. I mean, if he would have just stopped, but of course the problem with the Fed is they have to give precise, definitive forecasts even if they're totally wrong. But if he would have just stopped with, we've never shut down an economy, we've never restarted an economy, and we're seeing all kind of knock-on effects, and we're feeling around in the dark, I don't think anybody complained because that's exactly where we're at. But when you want to then start telling me, oh, but the supply chain thing will peak in two months and the inflation rates will peak in the second quarter, now you're just guessing is, is really what you're doing because your models are pre-pandemic models and we don't know if they work post-pandemic. Yeah, and I can hear our friends on the Austrian side of the aisle saying that's what happens when the most important price signal in the economy, the price of money gets distorted. You mentioned something else that was interesting that I wanted you to weigh in on, which is the fiscal side. Talk a little bit about what's happening in Washington right now uh, with the infrastructure bill, with the budget, the looming uh, redux of the debt ceiling. How do you see what's happening from the political <clears throat> context and its impact on the economy and markets? 
I'm 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 going to say another provocative thing, and I'm I don't think I'm overstating it. The whole Biden presidency comes down to what happens, maybe tonight, maybe in the next couple of days. Do they get this bill, the infrastructure bill, and the Build Back Better bill? Do they get them passed through the House? Now, if they get them passed through the House, we don't know where they're going to go in the Senate because Joe Manchin. Kirsten Sinema already said they're not into what the House is about to pass. But if they can't get this stuff passed at all, then we are really going to be in a situation where the Democratic Party could wind up imploding on itself. Look, you, we got Veterans Day coming in a couple of days. They're going to go out on recess. Then they're going to go out on recess at Thanksgiving. And the reason this is important is December 3rd, is still the date that has been thrown out there. It's largely made up date, but they're still using December 3rd as the date for the debt ceiling. That has to get raised, full stop. You cannot ignore that. You can crash and burn with your spending bills. You can crash and burn with your infrastructure bills, but you cannot ignore the debt ceiling bill or the budget because the, the temporary uh, continuing resolution ends on December 3rd too, and you'd have a government shutdown because you wouldn't have a budget in place. And the problem is, no one likes to vote for the debt ceiling. It is a toxic vote that no one wants to take. Yeah. And the Republicans are not in on this. So if the Democrats can't pass anything, and then they have to go in on December 2nd or 3rd and pass a debt ceiling, then, you know, the Republicans are going to crank up the commercials. They're just going to hammer them all next year for being fiscally irresponsible. And that is effective, as what we found over the last several years. That's why they always love to have the debt ceiling be bipartisan because then you can't really pin it on one party because both parties have, have done it. But this is really why I think what's happening in Washington is really important right now. Do they get this passed? Do they show some kind of semblance of a consensus? Or is it every man for himself after the Virginia election and some of the other surprising elections earlier this week? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I think about it big picture. You talk about what's happening down in Washington. I am not a political guy. I try and get my head around this. We were talking a little bit offline. Uh, it depends upon which bill gets voted on in the House. There are all kinds of intense mechanics about reconciliation procedures and whether you get a bill that needs to be modified. Uh, but the least you need to know, I think, uh, is that you obviously have this hyperpartisan environment where Democrats and Republicans agree on just about nothing, particularly on things that involve spending. Uh, and the deficit. And now you have this interesting situation where you have uh, Senators Manchin and Cinema in the Senate uh, who are pushing back against what uh, the base in the Democratic Party, particularly uh, on the social justice side of the Democratic Party, want to get done. And the ultimate result is what we have right now, which is gridlock, the inability to seem to get a bill that both sides want to vote on. You know, we learned this four years ago with the Republicans, too is that uh, the natural instinct is, hey, we're the majority party in the House, the Senate, we got the presidency, like the Republicans four years ago. We don't need to negotiate with the other side. Okay, fine. You're finding that getting an agreement on your party on something might be harder than if you actually tried to push through a bipartisan bill. The Republicans famously fell apart, you know, with trying to repeal Obamacare and a lot of other issues back then. The Democrats are falling apart here with trying to raise taxes and increase spending. And, you know, and, and for those that are not watching politics, you would think, are you kidding me? The Democrats can't figure out how to raise taxes and increase spending. Yeah, it's all about the amount that they want to do it. And, they, and, they're, and they've got very intransigent sides, both the progressives and the moderates. And 
we've got a date out there, December 3rd, of a debt ceiling bill. See, what they were hoping for is, you know, you'd pass all this stuff and buried in there would be the debt ceiling, but you'd have all these other things going on at the same time to kind of cloud that issue. But now if all this falls apart, they will only pass a debt ceiling bill and that will be the only thing that they have done. And that's not good politically for them. Yeah, I mean, only passing the debt ceiling uh, bill is like, uh, you know, you keep the lights on, right? That's really, right. The, that's less of an accomplishment than it sounds. Right, exactly. And most people don't like it because it reminds them that the government is fiscally irresponsible and it spends too much money and it polls very poorly about, are you in favor of raising the debt? Most Americans say no, they don't like it. And, and so if that's all you've accomplished is doing the thing that no one likes, that's not a good outcome for the for the Democrats in this party or in this process that we're seeing here. Yeah, and meanwhile, we still have this underlying inflation. I wanted to just pull up this chart really quick on core PCE. Uh, this is the year-over-year -year chart on core PCE. And as you can see, uh, obviously, it's a pretty steep upward slope beginning in March on the reopening. Uh, right now, this is the Fed's preferred indicator of inflation. Uh, and we're looking at it, it's about 50% higher than their longer term target, which is 2% on PCE, core PCE, I should say, year over year inflation. You know, it's it's uh, it's worth remarking here that uh, the Fed has talked about, I, I, the, the term that's sometimes used is asymmetric targeting, the idea that when the inflation rate has run below the target, it needs to run above the target. The other uh, point that obviously gets thrown in here is this notion of transitory uh, which means that obviously we see this inflation as a consequence right now of the reopening. Uh, where do you weigh in on the inflation side of the issue? I know we've talked a little bit about this uh, in terms of the taper, in terms of what's happening in supply chains, but directly to inflation, Jim, what do you think about this? Do you think uh, transitory is going to go on uh, for the next two years, making it not transitory at all? Well, that's, <laughs> that's exactly what Paul said on Wednesday. He finally came out, best of my knowledge, and gave a definition of transitory is he said that it's, it's inflation that's not permanent. Well, and he didn't put a time frame on it. Well, the Weimar Republic hyperinflation wasn't permanent. You know, Zimbabwe yeah. wasn't permanent. The 70s wasn't permanent. I'm not permanent. You're not permanent. The, the planet Earth is not permanent. So yeah, if that's going to be your definition of, of transitory, that it doesn't leave a permanent mark, then everything's transitory. But looking away from that analytically meaningless statement, you've got inflation running much hotter Ultimately, there is another voice in every central bank's policy meeting, and that's the market. And I've talked about this already. Yeah. If these high short-term rates stay there, yeah, they're going to bounce around a lot, but they continue to move higher you know, through the end of the year into the first quarter, it's going to be a big, powerful voice telling them they've got to address the inflation situation. Now, why? Well, the transitory items in this, in this measure are coming down. Airline tickets, rental car prices are, are going to probably are rolling over and probably going to come down. But the more permanent things, wages, uh, owner's equivalent rent, or the broader shelter index uh, of measures of inflation, that's set to move higher into the middle of the year. That's why Powell said himself, we might not see this measure peak until the second or third quarter. We still might be six or nine months away from this peaking. He said that will still be in, in transitory. Not if the market throws a fit, it won't be transitory. They'll be forced to react to it um, at that point. So it, that's why I think really the, the big question here is how do interest rates, and now I'm pivoting from watching long rates to short rates, 
And how do short rates react going forward from here? I think the trends have been established as higher. And as we go into the end of the year and beginning of next year, short rates will go even higher and higher. The probabilities that the Fed will raise rates more aggressively next year will become two. You know, right now it's priced in for June and September, maybe a third. And they'll go through the five stages of grief. Right now we're in the denial stage. No, the Fed's not going to raise rates that much. But eventually we'll get to the acceptance stage by the first quarter or so that they're, that they're going to start raising rates rather quickly. And I wouldn't be surprised if short rates move up enough that, remember, at every meeting they got to decide on the taper at the next meeting, that they wind up speeding it up. And maybe they start looking at a May rate hike because they're done with the taper in May as opposed to June. Yeah, the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross view of monetary policy. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's get right back to the top analysis of today's markets. Uh, Jim, I know we've had a lot to cover here, uh, and I want to jump into some questions shortly, but is there anything we've missed, any important signals that you'd like to talk about what you're seeing as you look at macro and markets? Uh... The there's this thing called cryptocurrencies. Maybe you've heard of them, Ash, you know, a little bit. And yes. they're making new highs as they, as we continue to see them unfold in the face of a lot of regulatory FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Uh, I think what we're seeing in those markets has been very bullish. And I think that, it, you know, a lot of where we're going to go from here is going to be very good. We had a stable coin. Um, we had a stable coin report at the beginning of the week. Um, I think that they've maybe hopefully set us up for a, 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 a debate that everybody wants to avoid. Yep. And that is, can a, can a token or a, or a unit of money, like a cryptocurrency, be private property? Can I hold it in an electronic wallet with my own keys, and it's my property to do with it what I want? Because currently, and I've said this before here, everybody who's watching us, all of our net worths are zero. All of our money is owned by the financial institutions we keep it in. And we trust that they all have a little ledger that says that I have a claim on their money. But what the crypto market's trying to say is, no, let's turn it around that I own my own money. I own my own data. I, you know, It's mine. And therefore, I could put it into a storage facility, an electronic wallet, and I own the password or the private keys in this case, and no one else can tell me what to do with it. That's the debate we need to have. And yet we just, we kind of walk up to the edge of having that debate, whether or not money can be private property. And then we kind of get sucked into whether or not stablecoin issuers should be a bank or have a banking license. Well, that's all this, all, all that is about, is can private, can somebody privately issue money or does it always have to be some kind of entity of the federal government or the central bank? Jim, are those lasers I see coming out of your eyes? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they're on my Twitter account, too. You, but they're blue. They're blue lasers. They're not red. You know, and so uh, blue, more Ethereum, red being uh, Bitcoin. You know, you uh, you brought up a couple of really key points there. I'm going to have to be quick because Brian, our producer, is going to kill me if I don't bring this show in soon. But you put so many important points there, particularly on the stablecoin report. You know, my biggest takeaway from the stablecoin report uh, was the, the sort of meta aspect of it which was uh, you know, kind of a, a challenge to Congress, which was sort of like, you kids could be quiet back there or I'm gonna have to come back and do it for you. There was this sort of implicit sense uh, of if you, know, you guys aren't able to work this out, we're gonna have to make policy here 
at the Treasury, which we don't want to do. It's an interesting thing, particularly in the context of what we just talked about, uh, which is the dysfunction that we see in Washington. By the way, if you want to have a topic that's evergreen for a show, talk about dysfunction in the Congress. Uh, but now it seems to be at a particular high, and it's going to be very difficult to get anything through there. So I guess you can kind of wonder about the game theory of what that looks like, how it plays out, how we get changes for this incredibly important piece uh, of legislation about how stable coins get regulated. The second point that I would make is all of the interesting things that are happening right now in NFTs. I just got back from NFT NYC. The level of enthusiasm on the NFT side is so much higher than anything I've ever seen uh, in this space before. And by the way, that's a pretty extraordinary statement. I was talking with uh, with uh, Tony Greer on Tuesday about this. We had people waiting in line outside the venue who were cheering and screaming in line as they were waiting to get into a conference. For those of you who've never been to a financial conference before, that is generally not the way things go. People are annoyed when they're waiting in line. Uh, and it just sort of set up this, uh, this, the tone for what was happening in NFTs. We were talking a little bit about this offline. NFTs, do we really even know what they are yet? We all know about the use case that looks like uh, a digital collectible, a digital version of fine art. To what extent does that become something that can become uh, the entry point where you can manage your identity, where you can participate in communities, uh, participate in distributed social networks? So much to talk about. We're gonna have to have you on Real Vision crypto uh, to have that conversation. But I will add this, in addition to all of the enthusiasm, there was definitely an element uh, among some people in the space talking about rising risks, particularly three points. One, the allegations of wash trading in the NFT space. This is where people buy and sell things back to themselves to run up the price before selling it out to a third party. Two, the question of bubbles, whether or not we are seeing either in the short term or in a broader sense a bubble when you see some of the rises on these prices. Uh, that is something certainly to worry about. And finally, a third point, something that I heard uh, and that I've been sort of processing is this incredible renaissance in the development that's happening in the NFT space. And you may say on the surface that sounds like a good thing, but I have to tell you, Jim, a lot of what I was hearing about what was happening in the NFT space sounded like it might be encroaching on territory that was either A, securities, or B, regulated financial services, things like borrowing and lending on these platforms, uh, NFTs spawning other NFTs, which sure looks and sounds a lot like in-specie payment that we see, for example, on the fixed income side. So a lot of questions there. I wish we could talk about this for hours. We're going to have to have you back on Real Vision Crypto. I want to get at least one question in uh, from viewers, because there are a number of them here that are really good. Uh, this one comes to us from Jonas L uh, from the exchange. Uh, and the question is, I think it's a great question, and I would actually ask it to you even brought more broadly, which is, how does one comprehend this global bonds rally in a risk full-on environment. Implicit in that, we were talking, I think, a little bit about this offline, perhaps not about the Bank of England MPC failing to raise rates. That caused a little bit of surprise. What do you think about the global bond market and what's implicit for happening next there? Well, the problem with the global bond market is it is it has an enormous bid from central banks. The Fed buying $120 billion a month, that'll stop next, or slow down a little bit next week, but that's a trillion and a half dollars a year. You've got the ECB with their PEP program, their pandemic emergency purchase program. Uh, they're buying bonds. You've got yield curve control in Japan. You had yield curve control in Australia until they ended it this week because it exploded in their face. In the face of all of that, 
That's why I find that this rise in rates is so extraordinary. That's trillions of dollars worth of buying right there. That buying is supposed to push rates down. And if they back off of that buying, um, you know, you hear a line on Wall Street, tapering is not tightening. That is demonstrably false. Tapering is tightening. If it wasn't tightening, then, then QE is not easing. If, if QE is accommodative money, then reducing the amount of money you buy is tightening. Now, it might not be big tightening because you're reducing purchases, but it's just a watered-down version of a rate hike is all it really is. Eventually, you'll get to zero, and then you'll get a rate hike uh, <clears throat> as well. So in answering the question, that's why I think you're seeing a lot of what's happening in the bond market in terms of this rise in rates all year, especially in the last year. And let me, let me throw something else. I know a lot of people watching us might not be um, you know, deep into the weeds of a bond trading desk, but let me throw out a couple of statistics at you. If you look at the total return of a two-year note, if you bought the two-year note at the beginning of the year and rolled it all year long into the current two-year note, you're sitting at a loss of 36 basis points. Now, that doesn't sound like much, but again, that's why the, these, levered, these hedge funds leverage it, levered at 100 to 1, and then they wind up losing serious money on that. But we have never had a year ever that the two-year note has finished with a loss for the year. We're at a loss in the first week of November. So we're the closest we've ever been. This is one of the, this arguably on the front end of the yield curve is the worst market and a total return basis we've ever seen. On the 10 year or 30 year, there's 50 years of data. This is either the third, fourth or fifth worst year ever to own bonds, it, depending on which instrument you're looking at, the 10 year, the seven year, or the 30 year or so. And yet people keep talking to me bullish about, oh, rates are not up that much. It's really bad in the bond market. Do you want rates to go to 5%? You won't have a banking system if you thought that rates were supposed to go to 5% because that's where inflation is. So what you're seeing in the bond market, I think is extraordinary because the losses are big. You know, the total return um, returns losses are big. They're both at uh, the five years down around 5% or so on the year. And it's happening in the face of an identifiable trillions with an S dollar buyer it's still seeing those yields go up or those prices go down. And that's why I think it's really in significant to watch this unfold. And even though from the outside, you might say, well, the two-year note from 15 basis points to 21 to 40, that is a big move. It doesn't yeah. sound like a big move if you're, if you're punting around a Tesla stock, but that is a big move for that market. Yeah, particularly if you're leveraged. Jim, magnificent show great to have you on always love hearing your analysis we're gonna to have to have you back on real vision crypto and on real vision to talk more about some of these issues thank you so much for joining us thank you thanks again for watching the real vision daily briefing see you monday and until then the conversation continues on real visions exchange have a good weekend everyone